Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our May 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Exposure and Ritual Prevention Therapy, or EXRP, appears to be an effective add-on treatment with lasting benefits for patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder who continue to have symptoms after treatment with a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. A previous study by Dr. Foa and her colleagues found that eight weeks of EXRP was much more effective than stress management therapy, another type of cognitive behavioral therapy, in reducing OCD symptoms for patients taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors. In this current study, Patients who improved after eight weeks of acute treatment were followed over a 24-week maintenance period during which they received monthly sessions. After the 24 weeks of maintenance treatment, patients who received EXRP had significantly less severe OCD symptoms and were much more likely to have excellent response to treatment than those who received stress management treatment. However, the few patients who did well on stress management treatment maintained their gains just as well as those who did well with EXRP. Several factors made it more likely that a patient's condition would worsen after treatment. 1. Lower quality of life before treatment. 2. The presence of other psychological problems. and 3. Being female. Interestingly, however, the severity of depression before treatment did not affect the long-term maintenance of treatment gains. This study shows that EXRP is not only an effective acute treatment for OCD patients who are taking serotonin reuptake inhibitors and still have clinical symptoms as compared to another type of cognitive behavioral therapy, but that patients who benefit from EXRP are able to maintain their gains for at least six months. This research was funded by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health. To ensure that all their study psychotherapists radiate similar warmth, empathy, and other characteristics, some researchers have used the same therapists to deliver more than one type of psychotherapy. This so-called cross-therapist design solves one problem, but it raises others. Specifically, how many therapists are equally good at more than one psychotherapy? Are they equally true believers in more than one psychotherapy? Not answering these questions affirmatively could pose a problem for psychotherapy, a field some have compared to competing religions. Hence, a design that appears to control for therapist factors may actually cause or conceal them. In the first effort to examine the cross-therapist phenomenon, the authors of this article gathered 39 randomized trials. In each study, the same psychotherapists provided more than one psychotherapy. 
What the authors found was that almost none of these studies paid any attention to the crucial issue of controlling for therapists' psychotherapy allegiances. Only one of the 39 studies attempted to measure therapists' allegiances, and almost two-thirds of the studies failed to even mention the issue. All the while, they found that researchers who were judged to prefer one of their study treatments over the other tended to show that their preferred treatment had greater efficacy. Researchers who preferred cognitive behavioral therapy were least likely to consider such allegiance effects. The authors conclude that although the relatively small number of studies that they found limits the strength of their findings, they indicate that researchers who feel strongly allied to a treatment may consciously or unconsciously ignore the issue of therapist allegiance, potentially biasing their study results. The parameters of inpatient psychiatry have changed over the years, and these changes have led researchers to explore the correlates of extended hospitalization and the ways that admission length is related to functional outcome. However, the research has not provided much insight into the ways symptoms change during the course of hospitalization. Understanding how symptoms change and understanding the factors that influence the trajectory of recovery is important for developing evidence-based targets for the timing of interventions. In a study partially funded by NIMH, Clapp and colleagues looked at the trajectory of depressive symptoms in a large sample of psychiatric inpatients. Statistical modeling was used to project an overall trajectory of recovery as well as patterns of change unique to specific patient groups. Reductions in depressive symptoms were most rapid following admission, with recovery slowing gradually over the course of hospitalization. Factors that affected the patterns of recovery included gender, trauma history, previous psychiatric hospitalization, primary depressive diagnosis, and primary diagnosis of alcohol or substance use. Significant depressive symptoms were projected to continue for two weeks after admission before falling into the minimum range. Clinically significant symptom reduction occurred two to four weeks after admission for all patient groups. The investigators found that although patient characteristics did influence recovery patterns, clinically relevant benchmarks occurred with relative consistency after inpatient intervention. They conclude that timelines for adequate inpatient care will be largely contingent on program-specific goals. Trauma history has been linked to depression, but few studies have examined the relationship between lifetime trauma and DSM-4 depressive subtypes, such as depression with atypical features. Atypical depression, unlike melancholic depression, is defined by mood reactivity, increased appetite, hypersomnia, leaden paralysis, and interpersonal rejection sensitivity. The authors of this article conducted a chart review to compare lifetime trauma rates between patients with atypical depression and non-atypical depression. 
Lifetime trauma was reported significantly more often by depressed patients with atypical features than in those without. Specifically, patients with atypical features reported significantly more trauma both prior to and following depression onset. Furthermore, the overall atypical subtype accounted for more trauma history than any individual features, which suggests that atypical depression may be a distinct entity that accounts for the observed relationship rather than any of the features alone. Whether more trauma reports from patients with atypical depression relative to other depressive subtypes represents a recall bias or is due to atypically depressed patients actually incurring more trauma requires further research, the authors say. It is possible they conclude that the relationship between trauma and atypical depression may be more complex than the role of trauma in causing depression, as suggested by previous research, such that trauma and atypical depression may be continuously interrelated throughout life. Stahl and colleagues conducted a six-month open-label extension study supported by Synovian to evaluate the long-term safety and tolerability of lorazidone for schizophrenia. Patients who completed a six-week double-blind placebo-controlled trial of lorazidone were eligible to participate in the extension study. The most commonly reported adverse events of lorazidone were akathisia in 13% of patients and insomnia in 11%. The majority of adverse events were mild to moderate. Patients previously treated with olanzapine experienced improvements in weight and lipid levels. Patients maintained on lorazidone or started on lorazidone after receiving placebo experienced minimal changes in these parameters. No clinically meaningful changes were observed in prolactin levels or ECG parameters. Antipsychotic efficacy was maintained during six months of treatment irrespective of medication assignment during the preceding short-term study. In this open-label study, lorazidone was generally safe and well-tolerated, showed a low propensity for weight gain, minimal effects on metabolic parameters or prolactin, and no effect on QTC interval. Was associated with a modest rate of extrapyramidal symptoms and provided sustained antipsychotic efficacy. You may access the full text of this article free via the May Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Response to medication is an example of a signal that clinicians and researchers want to detect and measure. Medication response varies across patients. Some of the variability is genuine and is due to reasons that are intrinsic to the patient, but some of the variability is due to measurement error or noise. In this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade explains the concept of the signal-to-noise ratio as applied to clinical research and practice and gives examples of sources of noise. 
Suggestions are also made for how to reduce noise in clinical assessments. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to get Dr. Andrade's take on the topic and participate in the discussion. This month's ASCP Corner article by Daniel Matthews and Carlos Zarate focuses on clinical issues and recent developments regarding ketamine and related compounds for depression. Despite the dramatic increase in ketamine research, much work remains before this agent can be recommended for routine clinical practice. Refinements to the delivery of ketamine or work with similar compounds may eventually produce viable therapeutics for depression. The authors observed that although ketamine's rapid antidepressant effects and usefulness in treatment-resistant depression have received much attention, the discovery of ketamine's underlying mechanisms of action could ultimately have greater impact on the future development of mood disorder treatments. The aging HIV-infected population is currently witnessing growing public health interest in their quality of life as it is estimated that by 2015, half of HIV-infected individuals in the U.S. will be older than 50 years. To date, a majority of HIV research has been related to disease and disability. However, research has demonstrated that successful aging is possible for this population. The authors of this study aim to understand the risk and protective factors associated with self-rated successful aging with HIV. Their work was supported in part by the NIMH, National Institute on Aging, California HIV AIDS Research Program, and the University of California, San Diego. 83 HIV-infected individuals and age-matched HIV-uninfected adults completed a comprehensive survey on measures of self-rated successful aging, physical and emotional functioning, and positive psychological traits. Overall, HIV-infected adults gave themselves high ratings of successful aging, although their ratings were somewhat lower than those by HIV-uninfected adults. Despite worse physical and mental functioning and greater psychosocial stress among the HIV-infected participants, the two groups had comparable levels of optimism, personal mastery, and social support. Interestingly, successful aging was not related to HIV duration or disease status. The authors conclude that successful psychosocial aging is possible in older HIV-infected individuals. Clinicians can potentially help improve well-being in HIV-infected adults by focusing on interventions to enhance positive psychological traits. Metformin is a common drug for treating diabetes mellitus. Some studies have shown that it can reduce body weight, improve metabolic abnormalities, and even prevent diabetes. Dr. Chen and colleagues conducted a 24-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study to evaluate the effect of metformin on metabolic features in clozapine-treated patients with schizophrenia. 
The study followed patients' body weight after they stopped the intervention for at least 24 weeks. The study recruited 55 patients with a DSM-4 diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder who had been taking clozapine for more than three months, were overweight or obese, or fulfilled at least one criteria of metabolic syndrome. 28 were randomized to the metformin group and 27 to the placebo group. After the 24-week intervention, body weight, body mass index, waist circumference, fasting plasma glucose, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, insulin level, and insulin resistance index had significant changes in the metformin group. At the end of the intervention, nearly 30% of patients lost more than 7% of their body weight in the metformin group, whereas body weight in the placebo group remained the same. However, mean body weight returned to baseline in the metformin group after patients stopped the intervention. In conclusion, metformin can significantly reduce body weight and reverse metabolic abnormalities in clozapine-treated patients who have schizophrenia and pre-existing metabolic abnormalities. Notably, the beneficial effects of metformin on body weight disappeared after discontinuing this medication. Because strokes are the second leading cause of mortality worldwide, identification of risk factors for stroke is an important goal. Research has not yet established whether zolpidem, a commonly prescribed treatment for insomnia, is associated with an increased risk of stroke. To investigate this question, a case-controlled study was conducted using the National Health Insurance Research Database in Taiwan. The case group consisted of over 12,000 patients who were newly diagnosed with stroke between 2005 and 2009. The control group was four times larger than the case group. Findings indicated that zolpidem was associated with an increased risk of ischemic stroke, but not hemorrhagic stroke. The increased risk of ischemic stroke may result from effects of zolpidem that are independent of the sleep disorder. The authors highlighted two points. First, that zolpidem should not be overused because it is significantly associated with the increased risk of ischemic stroke. And second, that zolpidem should be prescribed for short-term treatment of insomnia or difficulty with getting to sleep. Stevens and colleagues performed an analysis of data on 547 patients in a first episode of psychosis who had been randomized to assertive specialized treatment or standard outpatient treatment. Their objective was to determine whether the specialized treatment reduced rates of violence and criminality. The specialized treatment consisted of assertive community treatment, family involvement, and social skills training. This treatment had previously been shown to reduce levels of clinical symptoms and problems with comorbid substance misuse. In comparisons of the two treatment groups, the investigators found similar levels of violence and criminality in regard to both how many patients were convicted and the frequency with which they committed offenses. 
Levels of criminality were modest, and it was found that around three-quarters of those who committed offenses after inclusion in the trial had also committed offenses prior to that time, either before illness onset or in the period between onset and treatment. The findings suggest that universally applied improvements to outpatient treatment may not be effective in reducing levels of violence and criminality in psychotic patients, despite the fact that these treatments are effective in reducing factors such as comorbid substance misuse and severity of psychotic symptoms, which are correlated with an increased risk of committing offenses. More targeted interventions for high-risk patients may be appropriate. Furthermore, the fact that problems with offending behavior are often pre-existing indicates that early detection and early intervention may also be merited. Although consistent evidence indicates that mental disorders are associated with decreased quality of life, it is unknown whether this decrease remains after the disorder remits. In a study supported by the National Institutes of Health, Rubio and colleagues examined changes in health-related quality of life that occurred three years after individuals who previously met criteria for mental disorder no longer met those criteria. For most, but not all, of the disorders, quality of life improved after remission, although this recovery was incomplete. In those who had recovered from a mood or anxiety disorder, the residual effect of the disorders persisted even when the mental disorder was no longer present. However, in people with substance use disorders, if there were no other comorbidities after remission, the recovery of quality of life was complete. The findings suggest that, despite differences across disorders, individuals who remit from a mental disorder generally have an improvement in quality of life, although this improvement is usually incomplete. Therefore, the residual deficits should still be addressed after remission. Anorexia nervosa is associated with endocrine dysfunction and comorbid anxiety and depression. Animal data suggests that oxytocin may have anxiolytic and antidepressant effects. The authors have previously reported increased oxytocin levels in women with active anorexia nervosa after meals, as well as decreased oxytocin levels in weight-recovered women with anorexia nervosa compared to healthy controls. A meal may represent a significant source of stress in anorexia patients. In a study supported by Harvard and the National Institutes of Health, Lawson and colleagues investigated the association between post-meal oxytocin secretion and anxiety and depression symptoms in 35 women, 13 with active anorexia, 9 who were weight-recovered from anorexia, and 13 healthy women. In women with anorexia, oxytocin area under the curve and post-meal oxytocin levels were positively associated with state trait anxiety scores. Oxytocin area under the curve and nadir levels were positively associated with Beck depression scores. The authors conclude that abnormal 
post-meal oxytocin secretion in women with anorexia nervosa is associated with increased anxiety and depression. This may represent an adaptive response of oxytocin secretion to food-related symptoms of anxiety and depression. This month, we feature a case report by Dr. Boyer and colleagues describing clinical and single photon emission computed tomography findings of a patient displaying heart disease with schizophrenia-like psychosis. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and much, much more from the May issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.